0: What is the future of music income? Will music licensing make us income from this point on? What will happen in the future with music income? I mean, that's the question that we all want to know about, right? So we already know that non-exclusive stock music, and by the way, there is news on this term, this term that I have struggled with, but we're going to talk about today. But we already know that Non-exclusive stock music has taken a hit over the years, the past few years, since the days of Audio Jungle and Pond5 paying hundreds and thousands to the early adopters back in the mid-teens. But now, is it income that we should even try? Is it is it income that's going to work in the future? Is there a reason to even do it? Um, we know that COVID completely completely wrecked live income. And is that going to come back? Is there, what's the future here? The actors and the writers are striking in Hollywood. What is the need for sync licensing music if no shows are being made? How is this going to affect the future? Is sync licensing something that's going to continue? Is this something that's going to continue to grow? Or has it indeed become too laden with people like us People like me, people of my ilk who talk about these kind of uh, income streams and, and crowd that market. What about jobs? What about music jobs that you could go out and get and start making a five-figure income like teaching at a school or working at a church? Is there a future there? Well, is that going away? Is that changing? What about sheet music? What about gaming music? What about beats? What about your beats? Are those going to continue to be viable ways to make any money in the future? What about Spotify and DSPs? Will they continue just to be a penny business or will payouts eventually increase? What about royalties? Now that BMI and ASCAP are changing, or are they changing? Uh, BMI, we're going to talk about that in the news today. A big kind of happening there. What is the future of your music income? I don't know about you guys, but I think about this every day. Like, what is the future of my music income? What is going to happen? Am I going to see, what am I going to see happen with my music? Is there, is there any reason to continue all this? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. And uh, I'm going to talk about it with my friends here in the chats. So today we're going to talk about this, my friends. And not only will you be co-hosting with me, but also I'm going to have another co-host, Mr. Chad Jibbit. I think that's how you pronounce it. So I'm going to ask Chad some questions. I'm going to ask him, is it true stuff is happening? And if stuff is happening, Chad, Please give us the answer. That's what we're going to try to figure out today. Is there any future in music income? Well, welcome to episode 82 of the Make Music Income podcast. Hey, thanks for everybody for being here. ISO is in the house. Signature Music, thanks for being here. Luca is in the house. Ron, thanks for being here today. Mr. Dave Croft, thanks for popping in, my friend. I know you are busy. I should have you hosting here with me today. And instead of Mr. Chad Gippett. Uh, Again, I believe that's how you pronounce his name. Um, He was only willing to talk to me through text, so we'll have to talk about that here in a moment. But today in episode 82, we're going to be speaking about this. We're going to be talking about the future of music income and what is it? What is it doing? What, what what are we looking forward to? What do we, do we have anything to look forward to? Is everything going to stay the same? Is it going to increase? Is it going to decrease? We're also going to redefine some terms. We're going to talk about BMI today and, and the changes that are going on there. And we're just going to have a high time talking about lots of things, but looking into the future today. Uh, so again, welcome to, to the podcast. My name is Eric Copeland. If you don't know, um, if you haven't been here before, and I think most of you are watching now have been here before, but if you haven't been here before, my name is Eric Copeland and I am a music composer I am a music producer. This is a show we talk about all kinds of music income, passive incomes like sync licensing, production music, stock music licensing, music publishing, and then more active incomes like artist income, performing and stuff like that, online channel income, making music, music production for people, making beats for people and different things like that. So anyway, I have made my whole living on this. My whole... Uh, adult life has been uh, since I got into a band at 22 and toured, or 21 and toured the Midwest in leather pants with spiked hair when there was hair, and uh, singing Huey Lewis and Bruce Springsteen across the nation, across the nation at every holiday in that would have us. Uh, we were there <laughs> every holiday in lounge. I was there. And so, uh, but I managed to turn that into a music, all my composing, all my arranging that I was fi- learning how to do and learn, figure out how to turn that into a production career, which literally held me uh, and kept me busy for 20 years working for clients uh, out of Kentucky and out of Nashville and then now out of Orlando. And uh, I've made all of this income outside the walls of the music industry we're going to talk about the music industry today but i've supported my family for all this time and still do with only music jobs you can do this too if you want to you don't have to you can choose to do anything you want uh most of you watching in fact are not likely either making a full-time music income and if you are it's probably not at a music label or a music publisher maybe you're tied in with some music publishers but probably Not working in the industry. If you are, I'd love to know. Um, But anyway, um, so on today's shows, we're going to ask the hard questions. We're going to ask the unanswerable questions. We're going to speculate. We're going to postulate before it's too late. Uh, And along the way, I will be answering your questions coming in live. Uh, especially if they relate to what is going on here. If you have questions, join us every Friday at 11 a.m. We do this live, and then it's then I edit it up tomorrow, and then you'll get a new kind of a cleaner version. But uh, this will be up uh, for the next f- forever. Uh, speaking of the future, this will be up in the future. Uh, Luca says, "I know this is off topic, but I want to thank you for recommending the personas." audio interface. I got the Studio 68C and I am doing great. Awesome. I use the uh, Presonus IO24, here's a picture of it, and uh, that's what I use. It's actually the Revelator IO24. Works pretty cool and seems to do good. It has a nice loopback feature in it, and allows me to do everything I need to do, so nothing too crazy, but certainly works for me. So that is what I use. I've had Personas um, interfaces many times before, and they've worked great. All right, well, let's move on here. And the next thing I want to go to really is my week. I I won't say narrowly, but Orlando pretty much escaped any hurricane issues other than just a little bit of rain. Anybody in this area would, would barely say it was any different than any other Florida day. A little bit of wind, but generally did not have much wind. If you heard about the hurricane uh, hitting Florida, it hit very north, almost in the, into the panhandle into the east side of the panhandle. So it went past us. No big deal. All I did was work on music that day and other, other things around the house. Wrote on more songs. Uh, we had uh, our week five of our composer's mastermind. That was fun. And so we had that happening. I worked a lot trying to get my tune set. If you don't know what tune set is, tune set is a program that I use to uh, keep track on all the different music I have in different libraries and see if anything's getting play. Did have a pretty good August um, where I had you know, five to ten uh, supposed uh, plays. Mostly looks like in Germany as far as I can tell. But uh, what I haven't been tracking is several other libraries, and so I was trying to figure out a way to have different ways to check on those libraries. And so I was working in Toonsat. I also am doing some sound exchange cleanup. If you don't know what sound exchange is, sound exchange collects from SiriusXM, but probably more important to me, Pandora and iHeartRadio where Spotify-ish type stuff can go. Um, And so since I'm doing more and more of that, I'm getting that all cleaned up. Uh, There was some guy in my sound exchange who does not belong there. So cleaning up the other people who have a similar name to me, and so getting them out of there, and that's been part of my week. I also, on the recommendation of uh, Shane Jensen, who is in my mastermind, and I also have a video coming up with Shane here very soon, um, uh, we were talking about music libraries and that I was needing more samples and uh, string, especially orchestral sounds. And he recommended that I look at Museo and East West, which both have subscription based libraries that you can uh, pay a monthly fee. Or Museo has a great deal for educate, educators. And so I'm um, looking at both of those right now, seeing if those will uh, help give me what I need. Um, I'm doing a lot of dramedy and things like that. And I used to have an orchestrator that did most of my orchestration stuff. And sadly, he passed away a few, a few years back from COVID. He was a good friend, but a terrific, amazing orchestrator. I could hand him stuff and it just was right. But now I am having to orchestrate myself a lot more. And so I am uh, needing more orchestral sounds. And then I had four more songs accepted into motion array uh, this week. So I'll be throwing more in there. I only throw four or five in there at a time. Dave Croft says $49 per year for Museo is a no-brainer. I saw that deal, and yes, I'm absolutely going to grab it. Um, I don't see any reason why I wouldn't do that. Absolutely. I, I saw that myself, and so far, I've only listened to a few sounds, but they sound good. And you know, Every library is going to have good and bad things. Some, and you, I, I call it the audition process. I have to go and audition a clarinet through five or six different libraries and see which one is going to be the winner of that particular, um, that particular uh, audition process and make the make the orchestra for that particular tune. But what Dave is talking about is uh, they for educators and students. Musio has a $49 for a year. That's just amazing. And you get everything in their library. And so that's phew, no brainers, right? Um, so I'm looking at that. Um, like I said, got some songs in Motion Array and I also applied for, the, for Artlist again, for their owner, Artlist. So will I hear something good? Or will I just hear, which is probably more likely, um, I likely won't uh, get in. I've, I've tried to get in Artlist several times, but, you know, Artlist seems to be looking more for artists. I applied this time as a classical artist. And so we'll see if I have any luck. Uh, I They are very, uh, just like Motion Array, and many libraries these days, extremely, extremely um, careful Curators, and so that's fine. Um, most of the artists on Art List that I see are younger, so we'll we'll see if I um, make the grade and they are interested in me as a composer, because I am doing uh, a lot of my work right now. It seems like 25 at least percent of my work is in the classical realm, maybe even more, uh, as I redo classical things by Beethoven and just do new arrangements and other kinds of orchestral and. Contemporary classical things that I'm I create and created during my masters. I'm creating now, so we'll see uh, if that happens. And then I now have about 140 approved files at Motion Array. Not enough, but I am finding my lane there. I believe I'm finding the kinds of things that I do that work that continue to bring me consistent income through that library. And uh, you know what? Uh, I have a new idea for those kind of libraries, the Emotion Array, Pond5 libraries. I have been talking about how in the world do I, what do I call them? Steve and I both hate the word stock libraries. So we're going to come up with a new term here in just a minute. So that's it for my week. Let's move on to a favorite feature here on the program. And that is today's first news segment. (laughs) That's right. The news, Friday, September 1st, first day of September, 2023. And today what I want to talk about is the either impending or talked about sale of BMI. This is something that people have been sending me messages about, and I'm sure Dave, you've been getting messages and everyone who is interested is wondering about this and let me make sure I'm on the right. As a matter of fact, I uh, asked my co-host today about this and I text him a question and I asked him, I said, oh Chad, uh, will BMI being sold to a private equity firm affect how it pays songwriters? And uh, Chad was, was quick to answer and he said, As of my last knowledge update in September 21, and remember, the free version of uh, Chad's uh, Chad's a little behind the times. Uh, This is Chad. He calls himself Chad 3.5. I don't know why. But uh, in this version, he says it had not been sold at that time. But he said, if BMI were to be sold to a private equity firm or undergo any significant ownership change, it could potentially lead to changes in how it operates and compensates songwriters. For instance, it could have operational changes, cost-cutting measures. That's not something that uh, songwriters like to hear, uh, that they might cost, uh, take away songwriter services and support. Um, but what they could do is also invest in technology. And to be to me here, folks, this is where um this gets real for us and gets to be a a real need for us um, we really need to to have this kind of um, uh, this kind of advancement in BMI, ASCAP, CSAC all of these need the advancement we were promised was it 15 years ago remember when ISRCs started to become a thing, and the ISRC was a code that we were putting on every CD track and every CD, and what this was going to do was this was going to solve the problem, and every radio station was gonna use the ISRC code, and that, was going, that technology was uh, going to really bring us back. It was going to get rid of the problem we were going to get technology involved in royalties. And anytime a song was played, that digital code would get shared. And to me, personally, I just don't think that dream of the ISRC code has happened. And uh, we may even talk about the ISRC code here later on in the show. But getting back to what Chad was saying, um, he said this could lead to investment in technology and it could lead to some growth. Um, I lost Chad there for a second. Um, certainly could lead to some investment and growth there. And um, expansion could happen. We could have a better interface. Let me tell you, the BMI interface is fine, but it is ages old. And I wouldn't mind if it was a little slicker, a little better. It works fine. Um, Dave or anyone who is a – well, Dave's not with BMI, but anyone who's with BMI – uh, you might say, hey, don't mess with something that works, but at the same time, it wouldn't be bad if it was better. Private equity ownership might lead to changes in the negotiation of licensing agreements, impacting rates Could for the good or bad, who knows. Um, and then the, the problem here, probably the biggest problem and thing that people worry about is how will a private equity firm uh, influence how BMI relates to its writers? I mean, we are... We are the people who are trying to get serviced by these. I just sent uh, an, an email to BMI this morning and hopefully they've answered. Uh, they are usually pretty quick to answer um, any emails but I don't see that, uh, a response to it just yet. But I asked them uh, something about the fee for BMI uh, and that's something we can talk about. Uh, speaking of BMI, Um, I asked Chad here, was BMI Music free or is BMI free to join? And he said, as of September 21, BMI does charge a one-time nominal fee. And they do charge $75 now. But I have been telling my students, and my students have been reporting to me as of even the last six months, that BMI was free to join. Dave, if you know anything about this or anybody knows about this, it seems like this has changed recently. And so, uh, to me, it seems like there has been a change there. Uh, Dave said ASCAP's UI is great. Um, I does I, I imagine CSAC also has a UI? Is it as good? I know that um, BMIs is fine. It's just antiquated looking. If you've ever used it. it, doesn't it doesn't not work well? It's just very. It looks like something they came up with 15 years ago, which is exactly what it is. And it hasn't changed since then. It's just not the same. Um, I uh, Dave says you thought BMI was free. I, I did too for writers. But if you go on their site right now and say um, BMI, um, fee to join, and a, there are a lot of sites that will say it's free. The problem is, Okay, here we go, and this is straight from the horse's mouth. If we look right here, what is the fee to join as a songwriter or composer? There is a one-time fee of $75 to join BMI as a songwriter or composer. It's right here, literally in black and white, my friends. Uh, This seems to have changed recently, and that's what I emailed uh, BMI about today. And so that's that's what I was talking about with this change. Just so you know, I checked ASCAP, and they are currently are waiving their fee to join. So um, ASCAP is free right now, and BMI costs $75. Yes, and Dave says, I feel that's a recent change, and I do too. Um, uh, hello, Shane. Shane is in the house. Good to see you. Was talking about you a minute ago. Um, all good things, Shane. All good things. Um, we were talking about the different... We're talking about BMI being sold, but we're also talking about the BMI interface. And Dave said that uh, the ASCAP UI is great and CSAC is much improved and getting better. Um, But Dave says ASCAP is slick and very forward-thinking. So, uh, you know, just comparing the American uh, PROs, performance rights organization, BMI, ASCAP, and CSAC... And their online things. But yeah, I also feel that this is a recent change at BMI as far as charging $75. Uh, they used to, I joined in it with $75. Shane says he loves the ease of ASCAP, joined as a publisher and a songwriter. Well, I, I don't have any problems with BMI. There I have heard some conflicting reports of which one pays better for what thing. There used to be people who say Christian music played paid better at ASCAP. People are, I've heard uh, other people, including Jesse, say he feels like BMI pays better, licensing better at uh, than ASCAP does. Who knows? Um, I, I think all of that is um, is all over the place, and it's going to be just on your particular your particular experience. Hey, folks, Editor Eric here. I want you to know that I did get an answer from BMI on the cost of joining, and I said hello. I have been a twenty plus year. BMI writer. Recently, I thought the fee to join was free, even though I remember paying to join years ago. I've been telling my students it was free to join and hearing it was free even six months. Hey folks, editor Eric here. I want you to know that I did get an answer from BMI on the cost of joining. And I said, hello, I have been a 20 plus year BMI writer. Recently, I thought the free, recently I thought the fee was, recently I thought the fee to join was free even though I remember paying to join years ago. I've been telling my students it was free to join and hearing it was free even six months ago. Did it recently change back to $75? Thank you. And I got a response from BMI that said, hi Eric, yes, we have now updated our fees to be $75 for Rider applications. And uh, I said, thank you so much. Some might ask me if this was related to any recent changes at BMI or was this a temporary change to free? Or do you anticipate that it might go back to free in the future? And BMI said, I do not. BMI is now operating as a for-profit organization. So interesting change there, going back to a for-profit organization. And now it's no longer free to join BMI. Just wanted to add that little bit of information. All right. Uh, do you know? And I always say this, and you should by now, know that we have stuff for free. I have to tell people this because if I don't tell you, you may not know. And I want you to know because you know we have lots of different free things at Make Music Income, especially our book, ebook, "50 Ways to Make Music Income." This is probably our most popular ebook, and you can get version three, which is updated just in July. And um, I update this all the time, add stuff to it. There's way more than there's more than fifty in there now. I could probably stretch that out to hundred if I wanted to. But if you are looking for something free, just go to makemusicincome.com and grab you a free version of this ebook. All right. So this really next news item isn't news, and um, it's news. And I'll play the news theme because I know you love it. So. This this really isn't news at all, and but it's something that I just found today as I was doing some research for today's show, and it's something that we've dealt with a lot uh, on this show uh, as far as um, it's one of the tenets of this show, and that is quote unquote stock music licensing or uh, royalty free. Licensing, or whatever you want to call it. And I I read something today that I just, the term just clicked with me. And it's not a new term, it's a term people have been using for a long time. And that term is microsync. I just love this term. And let me show you where I saw this. I was just, I did a little search. And one of the first searches I found was my friends over at Symphonic. Music and if you don't know about symphonic music, they are a, a distributor based out of Tampa, and I, I really enjoy working with them. And so, yeah, uh, I I found them and and do, they actually approached me to do a video about them, which I did, and I'll uh, put that in the it's in in the uh, notes below eventually when I make notes below. And I thought it was interesting as I was looking through here thirteen ways you can make more money, streaming, publishing, play live shows, monetize YouTube. This is not uh, about that. But one of the things they get to after sync licensing is something they call micro sync. Just as an artist would be paid fees and royalties for a placement in a TV show or film, what we think of as sync licensing, they would also be owed micro sync fees and royalties for smaller features some examples of this are user generated content for youtube social media posts inter- internet company videos professional presentations at events and conferences professional wedding videos podcasts so this is so this exactly describes stock music and to me though microsync is a much better term for it and another site that talked about it was SongTrader, mentions Microsync, and I think of and I group them in with my non-exclusive Microsync stuff. Another site called uh, SongSleuth said if you're an artist, you might consider um, Microsync royalties. So this is Microsyncs online, particularly in user-generated content, TikTok, TikTok, and YouTube generate performance royalties if they use licensed music. And so self-releasing artists should also license their music for micro-sync. So to me, this is exactly what I am talking about, talking about uh, the fact that um, these exist, these micro-sync royalties that we talk about all the time. So I think maybe stock music licensing has seen its day. You've heard me talking about it on this podcast for literally uh, months now. And Steve and I have been debating and I've been debating it. And I think this is my new term for it. I think I'm going to change this in all my um, literature. MicroSync, I think, better describes the world of non-exclusive stock music. Um, What else would you call it? Royalty-free, any of that kind of stuff. I think this much better describes what that is. Because it's not sync licensing, but it is a form of sync licensing. It's still syncing some kind of smaller, probably um, some other kind of music to smaller screens, to YouTube, to comp- company presentations and things like that. So this, I think this is going to be my new, uh, my new thought on what I'm going to call this. Let me know what you think of that in the chat and in the comments below. Uh, getting back to um, BMI here for a second, Ron said when he joined BMI in 2021, it was free as a writer and 150 to join as a publisher, yes. And I had a student join, she's about to graduate, but she joined in the past eight or nine months, however long she's been at the school. She just joined, and when she joined, I went and checked with her, it was free for her. So uh, I think this, and everything I've seen uh, is, is leading up to this being a recent change. So that mystery is being solved. Was it a mystery? well uh, one thing that is a real mystery is something I'm doing recently called 60 for 60 um, this is something you need to check out if you have ever had a a thought uh, a just a, a a quick thought about working with me from a uh, from a consulting or coaching position you might want to check out this, uh, what is your biggest question? What is the thing that you need answered that you'd just like to talk to me privately and find out how you could solve your biggest problem? Um, What is the thing that you can't seem to get? Is is it something in music licensing that you're trying to understand? Is is, is Is your music produced well? Is it produced well for licensing or what should it be used for? What kind of music incomes are you trying to get That's what this is all about. Why is it $60? Why Dave is right now just turning around in his chair. Why in the world would you offer an hour of your time for $60? It's it's usually $125, folks. But um, it was my birthday. This is just more celebration of my birthday. My birthday month is over, but I will continue this for just another week or so. So if you are interested in sitting down with me on Zoom and having a conversation about um, about this, uh, this is your chance, uh, to get it for as cheap as it's going to ever be likely. So, um, (laughs) Dave, I'm so glad you're here. Um, but yeah, uh, that's what I'm offering right now. That's the big offer right now at make music income. So, uh, get this before it's gone, because probably by next week, I'll probably start to phase this out and go back to the normal price for it. Uh, Don't know why I'm doing it. I have no idea why I'm using the the 60 term. No idea at all why I'm using the the number 60. But I just thought it would be 60 minutes for $60 makes sense. Otherwise, 60 has no implications at all as far as my birthday or anything uh, related to this. Okay, so that's all of that. Let's move on here and back to the show, folks. It's time to get into the future of music income. Um, and by the way, Shane says he loves the idea of microsync. I do too. I think it is the i, I think it's the the answer I've been looking for. Let's let me get my notes up here and let's really get into the future of music income. What are we looking at? This is something that I don't know about you. I think about every day. You know, um, I look at my future uh, from here on out saying, what what is the goal? Um, I've made some new goals privately about how many songs I need out there over the next, I don't know, um, over the next t- three, four, five years uh, and, and how many I need to be out there in uh, production music, sync, licensing, whatever you want to call it, out there making me income. And uh, it's hefty. Uh, to the point where it may have to affect this channel at some point. Steve and I have the, the talk all the time on are we doing the right thing with our channels, spending all our time on the channels, or should we be working on music? Dave and I talk about this. Um, it, it, and Dave and I also teach uh, at, at at local universities here um, about music technology and, and music. And, you know, we wonder, should I be spending my time on that? Should I be spending my time on all those things—it's—it's a—it's—it's a, it's, it's hard to figure that out. But when you look at um, your music income and you look at where you need to be spending your time and what what is worth it, what is the future, and what is going to be worth my time in the future, one of the things that is really a, a thing that I wonder about is how much time should I spend on micro sync. So, uh, as a matter of fact, let's ask. I I asked Chad, my friend Chad Jippet, um if you're not uh, just joining me, we are speaking today with uh through text with um uh someone uh that I met online. You you may have met him as well. His name is Chad Jippet. I believe that's how you pronounce it. But Chad is uh, very sh- camera shy. So he asked if instead I could just text him questions. And so uh we'll start with actually just going back to the first question, what is the future? And I asked him, what does the future of music look like? And he said, predicting the exact future of music is challenging, as it is influenced by a wide range of technological, cultural, and society factors. Thank you. That sounds very dry. But uh, he he says several things uh, offer insights into the future of music. And one of those is streaming dominance. Streaming services have become the primary way people across Uh, access music. And certainly it is for me. I'm sure it is for you. This trend is likely to continue. We'll talk more about music streaming here in a little while and ask him a a more pointed question about this. But uh, the other thing that he brings up, (laughs) isn't this interesting that Chad uh, should bring up number two being AI and music creation. Hmm. Very self-serving, Chad. Artificial intelligence and machine learning are playing an increasing role in music creation and production. AI-generated music, virtual band members, and AI-powered music composition tools are emerging. No duh. We are talking to it now. But uh, he also goes on to say virtual reality and augmented reality will be things. Folks, let me tell you, in in just a few days, actually, Apple is having... Their next uh, hoo ha, their next big event thing that they're having. And the Apple that they made looks like a lot like their little glasses thing that they introduced, you know, their VR, AR uh, headset that they, uh, computer headset that they announced. Um, and I'm telling you, I, this, this is one of those things like the iPad, like the iPhone, and like the i. Pod, and like um, Apple, or I should say iTunes itself, I think this new um, glasses thing, I can't remember what it's called, um, but this new AR and VR headset that Apple has coming out, it's the start of the next thing. It, it's VR has all, always been, and 3D technology and all that stuff, it's has always been kind of gamey, kind of like uh, I, I, I worked with... Uh, Oculus the other day. My daughter brought an Oculus home and I used it and it was fine. But I'm not sure that that itself, by what it's doing, is the future of where I want to spend my time. Walking around with a headset on your head that you can't see anything is is dumb. But when we get to the place where, and we get back to where VR and AR are really, and I think AR is even bigger than VR, where you can change your environments. You can change your Uh, with surround sound and your environment, I think that is going to be a big, big opportunity for music, for uh, video and graphics people, and there is going to be a whole new industry come up around this, not just for games that you play in AR and VR, but the future, I think, is going to be much more for people who can develop pieces for this new VR and AR world, so I very much agree with this one. Um, this next one, blockchain and music rights, we will see. You know, they've been promising us this blockchain technology that's going to revolutionize music rights. This is a, another one of those promises that I'm not. I, I hope it, it helps, but the whole royalty thing is is really in need of, of overhauling. And maybe private equity firms coming into BMI, like we talked about earlier, is the answer. But um, also, interactive music experiences. Uh, another thing he talked to, uh, Chad, Chad Jippett here, talked about was virtual reality and augmented reality could make virtual concerts and immersive music videos more common and blur the line between physical and digital worlds. And and. Uh, I believe in Japan there are already performances taking place with digital characters, holograms of um, of Pokemon characters and all this kind of stuff happening. So some of this stuff is already the future is here. Um, interactive music experiences, diverse genres and globalization, you know, music genres as he says here, are continually evolving and blending. I blend music genres every day. I really enjoy it, actually. I love taking a song that uh, is classical and then adding hip-hop beats or adding world sounds or whatever, and so I think that's gonna be part of the globalization of music. I already have, many times, at least a quarter to a half of my class from, Um, uh, Hispanic or other types of countries that uh, are bringing their music cultures into the classroom and influencing uh, everybody. And so we're all influencing each other. I think this is going to be a big part of the future of music. Um, Sustainability. Um, Future trends may involve more sustainable practices in music production, distribution, live events. I'm not sure what that means. but uh, And maybe I should ask Chad about that. But... Music and social change—it's always been a platform for social and political change. This will likely continue. Um, emerging platforms now. Uh, 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 be, Chad being a uh, listen—I don't want to—I don't want to get into gender here, but being a, uh, a a person of digital likeness, digital form, we'll talk about things like NFTs, non-fungible tokens, which. I think basically are the VR of today, uh, the VR of <laughs> the VR of 2005. I think NFTs are that. Um, I, I'm not exactly uh, uh, high on what NFTs are going to do for uh, the 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 industry, but um, artist independence. Well, this is something that's been going on since 2000. I don't think artists, as a matter of fact, I think artist independence has taken a hit. Uh, since uh, in the past five or 10 years, but that's a whole other video with the demise of CDs, with the demise of places to play. I think artists, independent artists are are different, quite different than they were even 10 years ago. Um, So, you know, those are some of the things. Um, Chad kind of wraps it up by saying it's essential to remember that music is deeply tied to culture and human emotion. So while technology will play a significant role in shaping the future of music, the core elements of creativity Expression and connection with audience will remain fundamental. Music, uh, Future of music will likely be a blend of technological uh, technological advancements and artistic evolution. Well, no duh there, Chad. So that's just a few thoughts Chad had on the future of music income. Uh, next, we're going to go back here to Music Sync for a second because I pointedly asked um, Chad about... Do you think royalty-free stock music licensing will pay more or less in the future? And this is what he said about MicroSync. He said the future of, I'm just going to call it MicroSync, is subject to various factors, blah, blah, blah. Um, Let's see if he gets into anything actually interesting. Market demand. uh, This is a good question. How much in demand is music for YouTube? I think there's a lot of demand for it. Um, I think the, the, the problem is, number two is composition. As more musicians and composers contribute to the royalty-free music market, there may be increased competition for sales. Not maybe, there actually is. And so this is going to put price uh, pressure on pricing models, like everything has gone to subscription now. This is why I think that and uh, Chad even doesn't list this here, that the key in Microsync is going to be the back end, which is Content ID. Uh, I think uh, for corporate presentations, it's not, but sometimes those corporate presentations might make them themselves available on YouTube. And I think YouTube is the way that uh, we're going to get paid uh, for our microsync, probably better than the front end. It's very, MicroSync has always been very much like sync licensing. There is a front end and a back end, or at least there has been a back end that's come up over the past few years, and that is Content ID being so um, much better collected and and focused collection like with a company um, like Identify. So I, I think that the back end of MicroSync is where things are going to continue to be the income for MicroSync, for these kind of videos for YouTube that people use behind their YouTube videos. Um, Let's see. Marketplaces and platforms, Chad says, the policy and revenue sharing arrangements of royalty-free music marketplaces and platforms will play a crucial role in determining how much creators are paid. Yeah, and, you know, a platform is a good actual name for it because someplace like SongTrader that delves and works in not just licensing a song for video but licensing it for overhead music, licensing it for uh, com- uh, compilation albums or streaming albums or different things like that. I think those kind of platforms are things you should look into. In fact, my new course that I'm working on about, uh, I- I'm tr- turning my uh, stock market book into a course. And in that course, I'm starting with the things that you can get into now, not the things that are closed, because many things have closed down. Invito Elements, invite only. Auto jungle is closed, different things have closed. So I'm gonna start with the things you can get in, and one of the first things is SongTrader, because it makes me money there, and there's different monetization options there, so I'm, I'm pretty high on it. Um, and here's another one that's pretty important. Uh, originality and quality. High quality original compositions and unique musical styles are likely better to command better pricing and more demand. Musicians who can create distinctive music may have an advantage. This is something I am finding. Uh, I, I, I feel like I've always created pretty high quality music, especially since I was in Nashville and had great players to play quality music for me. But even so, um, the, the, the quality is great, but the originality and the uh, doing things that no one else is doing is helpful in the stock world. Um, I'm not gonna give away my secrets, but there are certain genres that I work in that not, not many people do. And because I work in those French genres, I get the people who are looking. I said fringe, not French. I don't do French music. I do not do French music. no, but um, I do uh, music that is on the French different um, different genres, and those genres are what make me money. they They are the ones that sell. I, I I look at my highest selling things and they are all in these different genres that I have. So I'm doubling down on the genres that work for me. And uh, and so that's what I'm doing in MicroSync. All right, I think that's enough. Uh, he summarizes it by saying it's likely to continue growing. Um, some creators might find increased opportunities in revenue might, while others might face challenges due to competition. And Well, so some people might do good, some mm-hmm. people might not do as good. So thank you a lot for that, um, those words there, Chad. Um, all right, so let's move on now to the next one that I want to talk about. And does it work like that? Does it work like this? I can never remember how this thing works, but I'll just go ahead in this way. Um, the next thing that I want to talk about is sync licensing and production music in here. Um, so it, Shane does, while we're, while we're still on Microsync here for a second, Shane says, if someone licensed your track from say Pond 5, would you get back end on those YouTube streams, or would the content creator get the ad revenue? Well, it depends, Shane. Um, if you are, if they don't monetize it on their video, then you would get the back end and or share the back end. Here's a here's a caveat for this: in Microsync, if you sell something on a um, stock library or or someplace and it gets onto a YouTube video. If you are the only music in there, then you will get monetized completely for that video and then how many times it plays, you get, you get a certain amount. But if there are five people who have music in that video, it's split up five ways as far as I can tell. And um, so yes, you would get back in on those YouTube streams unless the content creator has monetized the video. And they have cleared that song with Pond5. There is language they can go to Pond5, and they can. Pond5 has all the all the sites have a page that you can go to that tells them how to clear the royalty, so that, that clear the content ID, clear it. They don't have to worry about paying any content ID or losing any of the monetization there. So, um, so that is uh, that is one. That is the main gist of that conversation. You can uh, get the back end on your YouTube streams, but the content creator can also get that. So let's say I use, uh, I only use my music on my channel because my channel is whitelisted with content ID. So um, I I can anytime I use one of my songs, it just is is allowed. But if I was to download a song, uh, something from Pond5 and use it, and it was traced by content ID, I would get a copyright claim. And then to clear that copyright claim, I would have to go back to Pond5 and go through the process of telling either YouTube and or Pond5 that I paid for this. And they would say, oh, okay, it's royalty free. We promised you this. It's royalty free, so we will let you, here's the way to clear that claim. And once you clear the claim, that goes off and you start monetizing it as as the YouTube channel owner. But if they never go through that process, and most people don't because most people are not monetized, not everybody who is downloading stuff for YouTube is monetized on their channel. So I have another channel, my Composer channel, and I put stuff on. I get copyright claims out there all the time. I don't bother to clear them because I'm not monetizing that channel. I'm not getting any YouTube monetization from it. So it doesn't matter. Let them have anything that YouTube puts on it. Um, I'm not putting ads on it. So that's the answer to that question while we're talking about that. Um Okay, uh, I I will get back to your Spotify questions when we get to that here in a minute. All right, so back to sync licensing here and what Chad has to say on this. And so I asked Chad uh, what he thought about, um, let's let's see, I wanna zoom in here a little bit so you can read this and then I'm gonna put me over here in this space. All right, so I asked him, will sync licensing income continue to grow every year? And uh, he said the normal things. It can vary and influenced by factors. But he mentions media consumption trends. The way people consume media is continually evolving. Streaming services. Arg. Dave, if you're still watching, you know. And Dave talked about this recently on his podcast, which you should all be listening to, by the way, the 52Qs podcast. But uh, that streaming services such as Netflix, such as Hulu, they do not pay well at all. They do not pay anywhere like the networks or the digital or cable channels. Social media platforms, online videos, all of these are becoming more prominent. As long as these platforms use music, there will be likely opportunities for sync licensing. Yes, opportunities, but lower paying opportunities. So as the world becomes more Netflix and less network, we are going to make less in sync licensing. So. If everything takes off and networks just become, and and, and they pretty much already have, NBC has basically just started its own streaming network called Peacock. And I would bet you that Peacock pays a lot less than if something airs on NBC. And Dave, if you're still in the chat, you can let me know about that. Yeah, there he is. So um, that is is something that uh, I've seen. And Dave says yes. Streaming uh, pays fractions of pennies to the dollars. And so, Dave, I imagine that means if NBC airs Chicago Fire on NBC and you get a, 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 a song on there, a play on there um, into the soundtrack, and then it plays on Peacock, then the Peacock pay is much less than the network version, uh, I would guess. So you maybe you could tell us about that. But... Um, Shane says maybe composers need to strike for better streaming pay well that's why the actors are striking and the writers are striking because they're not getting paid as much probably in the same way for Netflix plays and for uh, for all these things Dave says if we had a union we'd be striking for sure it's literally the same thing that actors and writers are striking about yep just as I said so this is where we are uh, and so Chad I don't uh, this is this is older information, sometimes from him, since this is the free version of Chad Jippet. Um But, uh, and I am saying that on purpose, just so you know. Um, but uh, generally, when we look at things, um, emerging platforms, he talks about that again, and Uh, changes in copyright law, licensing agreements, royalty structures, that is really going to be the future of our our sync licensing income. Are they going to change Netflix uh, uh, licensing agreements and royalty structures? And will that be those kinds of things? It it certainly has the potential to keep growing. Jesse and Dave and all of us will talk about a reason to do this in the fact that there is not less television being made. Well, there is right now. But there is not less television being made, but there is more television being made and uh, than ever before. It's just that we're not likely getting paid as well for the newer technologies and so it will depend on these newer technologies if the uh, if these things actually work uh, and and be stay good paying incomes or if they continue to dwindle and that is where as far as I, as I think about it, uh, that is really uh, the the crux. We've got I've got to get more songs into these libraries. I think it's about quantity as much as quality. Dave, thank you so much for joining us, especially for this part. It was very valuable to have you in here. and Let's get lunch here soon, my friend. All right, so I want to move on here uh, to a few more things I want to talk about, and I'll probably talk about these a little bit more, uh, a little faster. Uh, live performance has been one of those things that we have uh, seen take a, a big dive since COVID. I've seen it firsthand with my brother's band, who was just practically getting signed and getting their first EP out, and then COVID hit, and everything uh, touring stopped. Everything stopped, and I think the band's, i haven't checked in with the band lately, but uh, but it's it 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 was a complete stop for this band who. Was on the path going up, and they were doing live performances all around the country, opening for uh, Blues Traveler, and just having a great time, and then and and getting ready to have their EP put out, and then COVID, and it just completely put the kibosh on the entire thing. So I asked our friend Chad Gippett I said, "Will live performance ever recover from COVID?" And Chad said the said that. The extent and pace of the recovery of live performance industry will depend on various factors. And while it's been challenging, there are reasons to believe it will eventually recover. Um, I have thoughts on this, but let's find out what Chad has to say first. He says, uh, vaccination and health measures, you know, that has brought the uh, pandemic under control. Although even just yesterday, I heard rumors, I heard babblings and uh, scared whisperings that a new strain was coming and things like that. But I think, uh, remember this is probably a couple years old, this information, but many people missed uh, attending live events and they are going back. But, uh, and and attendance has been strong and there's still, and people like Garth Brooks and the artists are, are, Taylor Swift are filling arenas completely now. So as long as a new strain doesn't come out and, and, and this stays under control, I think live generally has come back. Um, you still see people with masks on. You still have, see, have people who are scared to go out and um, among people and be very in close, close uh, proximity. But um, another interesting thing that. Uh, Chad says here, the live music industry has shown resilience by adapting to the circumstances. Virtual concerts, drive in shows, and other innovative approaches were introduced during the pand- pandemic. And some of these have continued, especially online shows and drive in shows, virtual concerts. These are all things that could happen. One thing that he's not mentioning here, but that he mentioned earlier, was the fact that AR and VR shows might be part of the future for the music industry and people can experience live shows from their living room this has long been something that vr has promised we can put you on the front row of a music concert you can look around and see everybody Um, we'll see if that continues to be a thing if that works as a uh, thing that's going to bring live performance back Um, he does mention here that many governments have provided financial assistance and support to live music people. I don't believe, I'm not sure what uh, the U.S. government has done with that. But I think it's right in number six, resilient resilient artists and venues. Um, We've seen a lot of places close, and I've heard a lot of reports about places close, but I, I know also a lot of places that have stayed open. And I know that people are still touring. I know that touring is still an active business because I have students graduating from the classes in the school that I teach at, who are going to work for live performance gigs? They are happening, and uh, it, they are happening a lot. Uh, especially not just big artists, but you know, um, have you ever heard of bands that play really expensive parties? They play these big events, and they play. It's either at a at a at a bar or at a restaurant or something. But it could also be at a an event place, and they come out and they play oldies or they play. Um, some kind of disco or they play whatever or wedding events and all those kind of things. So I think live performance is, is going to live performance has always been, it's the oldest music business that there is, is live performance before anything, even before sheet music, there was live performance and uh, I think it's going to continue in, in some way or the other. So as far as I'm concerned, that is a way that, uh, music income can continue, especially for people who really want to um, do and, and perform live. And this is a question that I have for all of you. Uh, people, are you performing live? Because I, I am having trouble finding artists that, to speak to on this channel. I'm, I've got an artist video that's coming out next on this channel. It's my next non-podcast video. It's about an artist who makes over six figures, and but he has to do it by performing a lot. And I'm not sure if everybody is um, is uh, is into that. Uh, Shane says here in Vegas, live performance is alive and well. Well, of course, yeah, it has to be. But uh, here is another person, Butterfly Jay says, a new COVID strain has come out. Watch the news, mask mandates. So you know we have um, positive. We've had this positive time where things have gotten better, but people are now saying that there's another strain coming. So um, we'll see um, if that is indeed a thing. I talked a minute ago about sheet music, and I did ask Chad, are sheet music sales still a viable way to make music income? And this is what Chad told me via chat. As I told you, Chad was very shy to come on here. So Chad told me, sheet music sales remain a viable way for musicians, composers, and music publishers to generate income, but the extent of its viability depends on several factors, genre and demand. Now, I have found so far that certain kinds of music do better. Certainly, piano-based music uh, does well. Uh, Classical, jazz, and traditional music genres often have a more established market for sheet music, so if you do any of those type of genres... You'll do well. I know. I, I I am in those genres, and so I have found that to be true. Dedicated musicians and students are seeking notation for practice and performance. Not only them, but also uh, con- orchestral groups, different ensembles. They're always looking for things to play. This is a this is kind of a hidden world of people who we. It's not as uh, super interesting as the easy passive quote unquote, easy passive licensing type of income. Um, Sheet music has been around much longer uh, than music licensing. And uh, it's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it is still out there today. And I've talked about on this channel, I have a very popular video that talks about sheet music. I've talked to a guy who does the sheet music uh, or the uh, selling sheet music podcast. You should listen to that podcast. It's pretty interesting. And, uh, you know, This is still something, folks. And so uh, music education, musicians and music teachers and students use sheet music to learn and practice instruments. So that contributes to ongoing sales. Digital distribution, you know, the the online world has changed sheet music distribution. It used to be you could only go to a store and just sort through different things. Now, just like with Spotify, we can go to sheet music uh, marketplaces and and find whatever we're looking for in whatever difficulty level we need, uh, different unique arrangements. Dave was just in here, and Dave talks all the time about having a very unique arrangement of a pop song uh, with a string quartet or or some kind of uh, uh, unique ensemble. This um, some of the some of the sheet music places let you put public domain and even cover songs up on these licensing sites on these sheet music licensing sites. So. Sheep music is still a thing. It's uh, I keep saying it. Not many people believe me. But let's talk about the next one. And I just talked about this recently with my friend Clint of Clint Music. And we talked about the world of beats. And I asked Chad, is the world of beats as used on sites like BeatStars a growing industry? And uh, Chad says, yes, uh, as used on websites like BeatStars. Beats is a growing and thriving industry within the music business. Beat leasing and selling platforms have gained significant popularity in recent years. Uh, It's been heavily affected by digitalization. Beat leasing platforms are a big business. I just had a student last night show me his newest creation. And basically his newest creation was a, a track he got off BeatStars with him rapping over it. Now, he did do some pretty unique music uh, or I should say vocal uh, arranging for this particular thing that he put on top of the beat that he got from BeatStars. So it was interesting. and um, But I have also heard on podcasts that at any time the top 100 could be filled with three or four songs directly that the tracks were downloaded from BeatStars and then added to with the artist. So... Um, this has diverse genres. I haven't found beat stars to be overly diverse, other than hip hop, from rap to pop, R&B, EDM. I don't find that as a I don't find those to be diverse genres. <laughs> I find those to be very similar genres. Uh, I don't think there's a much of a stretch from hip hop to EDM, and most of pop music these days. What is popular right now is hip hop and rap and uh, R&B, and so I think we are very much in a time. Of that, I would love to see Beatstars um, become uh, see have more rock, more metal, more um, more tracks for lots of different people who might need to use, more classical, more jazz. I would like to see Beatstars expand in that way, and that's when you get to doing that world music. I know there is a lot of world beat on there, but um, diverse genres will mean a lot more to me when you actually have really more. Diverse genres up there. And if you're a beat maker and you're watching this video, you can dispute that in comments if you'd like. Speaking of comments, I'm not paying attention up here anybody. Uh, Shane had a, 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 something about um, piano music, intermediate piano solo seem to be a fertile sheet music source. And what he means here is um, that stuff that's not too easy and stuff that's not too hard, piano solo stuff seems to sell really well as sheet music. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's something uh, that we should be aware of with sheet music. And then Lucas says, BeatStars has changed the subscription plans and added publishing for free with Sony Music. So, yeah, uh, a lot of stuff going on with Beats. And Chad says here, global reach. Um, producers and musicians from around the world can connect and work together. So, yeah, I've seen that happen with BeatStars. And, and when you really start to watch, and I listen to some podcasts about people who are making beats and things like that. The only problem, again, I have with it is it seems to not be very diverse as far as the genres. It's very focused in the hip-hop world. And I'd love to see it be more uh, spread out genre-wise. But I'm still researching it, and I'll have more information about it. Because I think BeatStars is not too far removed from Pond5 or from Motion Array or from Artlist. Probably Artlist uh, or Motion Array is a better... uh, Probably Artlist is a better comparison to it, but I don't see that BeatStars is too far away from some of the microsync or non-exclusive licensing sites like Artlist. So I think it's it's just another non-exclusive site as far as I'm concerned. Just like Sheet Music, I think it's another non-exclusive music income source that is growing for sure. And so uh, Chad here says, while the industry is growing, it's also evolving. Success on beat licensing platforms also often requires not only producing high-quality beats, but also effective marketing, branding, and customer service. And this is what I see on these videos and these podcasts where people are talking about how they're making money with beats. They're making money with beats because they are marketing on YouTube and marketing their beats there. All right. And then what I got to with uh, Chad here, and we're, we're coming down to the end here, I promise, folks. I know this is a long one, so just... Uh, you know, If you need to pause, take a break. I'll be here. I'll be here all day. Um, gaming music. Music for games. And I'm not necessarily talking EA sports games here. I'm talking about games that uh, like our 2 and 3D games that you might download on your phone or play on, on a computer. And the gaming industry growth is, is, is growing, is continuing to grow. You know you play games on your phone, and all of those mobile games, console games, PC gaming is a big deal. You you may not be familiar with it, but gaming music uh, on PCs is, is something that it, games are being developed all the time by independent gaming makers. And in the same way, um, diverse game genres, different kinds of things, pack, um, action-packed shooter games, um, story-based games, there's, there's a different need for... I've been told that piano music works great on a lot of these things, just solo piano music. And I have tons of that. So that's something that I keep saying I'm going to try. I'm just worried about some of the content ID ramifications of that. But their uh, indie game development is a big part of this. And when you watch uh, someone like my friend Stephen Malin, who's going to join us here on the show again here soon, um, you know he he does a lot of work for indie game game companies who hire him to make uh, soundtracks for their games, and so this has opened up opportunities for smaller music creators, hello, just like us, to work on projects with smaller budgets. This is the equivalent to Pond5 or Motion Array for gaming music creator, uh, gaming creators. So uh, again, we hit the VR and AR. Um, line. These technologies are, as they continue to develop, they will drive further demand for creative music and gaming. So as the Apple headset, as the AR and VR world grows and changes, we're going to see games developed for this technology. We're going to see music needed for these games. Um, Esports has become a huge industry. If you're not familiar with esports, this is where people... Go live and compete against each other in a live space, uh, at a game in a live um, in a live event. They're in a bar. They're in a, uh, a a special place where they are playing a game and they have teams. There are people who play uh, NBA games and yet they're playing virtual NBA games on an NBA um, and and all the NBA teams now have their own esports teams playing NBA games. It's it's crazy. But all of those use music that is licensed. So all of this stuff, streaming and content creation, um, people who are playing these games and then streaming it on YouTube and Twitch, and background music is playing and is paying. So these are opportunities for the future. And then uh, licensed games like with EA, EA Games, EA Sports and things like that. In-game purchases, and you can sell music packs. Um, They are gigantic music packs that you can sell tons of sound effects and or music. So all sorts of cross-media opportunities where gaming is crossed into film and television and advertising. So I I believe that composers, uh, and Chad says, composers and musicians who can adapt their skills to meet the diverse needs of gaming world are likely to find ongoing opportunities for profit and creative expression. Folks, this is – I just have to thank Chad at this point. This is a really packed – like I said, you may have to save this and listen to it in a couple of listens because this is some stuff here. Um, We're going to be getting more into the next two things here, and they're probably not as – as shiny as some of the other incomes that I talk about. But music teaching, I asked Chad, will income as a music teacher continue to grow? And in this, he said, the direction of in which it will go in the future is not uniform. That's a strange answer. What a, what a Chad thing to say. But um, here are some considerations that you might think about. The demand for music education. Uh, I personally, being a music educator at a school, don't think that demand is going down. As a matter of fact, we're, we're having to add computers to classrooms. Um, and I think that uh, – and we – here's the big part. Our online side has getting classes that are 29 and 30 people. We usually have 15 people in these classes. And so the online classes are growing even more. And so the teaching platforms that are not in-person are growing and uh, it's getting hard to keep music teachers. We're having trouble keeping these teachers. And so, um, and I, again, I got this job at this particular job teaching at this uh, school, this tech school, because I had a specialized expertise. I had a background that stood out because I'd been producing people for 20 years in Nashville. So that was helpful for me to get the job at this school and maybe you have some special music income and or experience in music that will lead lead you there. Obviously, advanced degrees, certifications in music are going to help, private versus institutional, where that means like a school like mine, which is more of a tech school, Dave's school is more of a tech university, and then, you know, like a, a standard college. But I have to think about all the colleges that don't have recording programs, I think, I have thought many times about going to colleges, including the one I got my master's from, and saying, have you ever thought about restarting a recording program to go along with your music school, which is very, very good. But, um, you know, and they have. And then seeing if they need someone to fill that role. You could fill that role possibly in a school or, uh, and this doesn't have to be a college or um, a four or two-year school, but it could be a, a high school or it could be a prep school or it could be something like that. A local school might be interested in you bringing a program to them. So uh, I did ask also, and I'll get to this in a minute, but I asked uh, what is the mean salary, which means the average salary for a college music professor. And uh, Chad tells me here as of September 21, this is two years ago, um, the mean salary for a college professor in the United States typically range from 60000 to 120000 or more per year. And I'll tell you that I've done some other searches for uh, people with a master's degree, and the starting salary should be right around 60000 So if you can add that and then be working on if you like to do other things like sheet music or if you like to do things like uh, licensing and things like that, that's it's a very, uh, very helpful income. And then uh, I also want to touch as we finalize, go through the final things here on church music here for a minute. And this is something that Mr. Shane and I are going to talk about uh, very soon. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, his job as a church music director, and we're going to be talking about what that means. And so, uh, Ron, thanks for being here. We'll see you next time. Um, so we're, we're going to see, I think, I also asked Chad, what, um, let me just say here, is a job in church music a viable way to make a five-figure income? And a job in church music can provide a source of income, he says, but whether it can yield five-figure income depends on several factors. How much do you want to do? Are you going to have a lot of roles in the church? Are you going to be a church music director? Or are you just going to be the organist? Or are you just going to be a part-time choir director or a part-time accompanist? So all of these things. How big is the church? I've worked for two churches part-time recently, and they were very part time type jobs. But that's because they were very small churches. No more than 100 people or so were actually um, at, the, at the services. So it wasn't a large church, and so the salary for a part-time person wasn't very large. What are your qualifications? Have you been... Uh, in church work for a long time. Do you have a master's degree or even uh, any kind of certifications and a strong portfolio that can make you competitive for higher paying positions? Um, Again, additional duties beyond being the church music director. Maybe you have youth ministry things or different things. And then, again, part-time or full-time. And then one of the things that that Shane and I are going to talk about when we talk about this is the fact that church jobs and teaching jobs too. They offer you the ability to have a consistent income and still work hand in hand, hand in glove, you might say, with things like composing and performing and uh, doing live events and licensing and all of those things. And so you can take the 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 money that you're getting from your school job or your church job and then add on licensing to that and add on your royalties and suddenly you've got a very nice income and that's what I'm doing right now Um, I did ask um, Chad here what is the mean salary of a let's see which one do I say of a church music director Shane you're going to love this one Um, at this time and this is again a couple years old the mean salary for a church music director in the United States typically ranges from thirty thousand to sixty thousand or more per year. Again, church size, where it's located, how many people in the church, uh, dom- denomination, what kind of church is it? Is it a more, uh, is it a, a bigger non-denominational or a bigger Catholic or uh, Baptist, one of the bigger denominations, or is it a smaller, more focused denomination and That's another conversation. Again, full-time or part-time. Additional compensation you get for doing different things. Sometimes you help out with weddings. You help out with funerals. You help out with holiday services and you get more money. So that's just another thing that I talked with Chad about uh, as far as making music income and church music was another one of those things. As you see, there's so many things, folks, so many things for me to talk about in this. Um, I also asked him where he thought music streaming was going. And so I, let's see if I can find that here from him. I said, Chad, oh, Chad, will streaming services like Spotify and Apple continue to grow? And they were all at, in 2001, experiencing significant growth. I, and if you look, I have videos where I talk about what is happening in the, um, in that world, in, in the world of, um, sorry, my iPad is dying. In the world of um, streaming, in the world of how much income is coming in from the RIAA stats and stuff like that, and streaming is growing year on year. It's not slowing. It It might have slowed a little bit compared to 2020 to 21, but from 21 to 22 is a pretty normal rate increase. People are, there's no other answer is the problem. Do you have another answer of how you're going to listen to music or how the majority of people are going to conveniently listen to music other than streaming? Because I don't. Not going back to radio, not going back to physical media, it's still streaming. And uh, some factors that may increase or decrease streaming services, market saturation. Will Spotify... Somebody's had a funny comment about Spotify back here. Hey there, uh, Matias says, join the chat. Glad you could join us today. Uh, Shane said, um, I was listening to a podcast that said Spotify has over 80 million tracks, difficult to float to the top, especially with algorithms. And they said, did you hear about a site called Forgotify for tracks that have no streams on Spotify? Yeah, there are a lot of uh, streams... A lot of, a lot. I mean, I think it's some weird high number, like 75% have never gotten more than one play or even been heard that are on Spotify. It's some crazy number. And so, but uh, are we at a place where we're going to see more stuff? And Chad says um, there could be emerging markets. Streaming services are still expanding into parts of Asia, Africa, Latin America. Believe it or not, folks, Spotify and, and Apple Music are not everywhere, and they are, and even technology to play and stream them is not everywhere just yet. You think we're in a world where everybody can stream everywhere, but that's not the case. And so, as that, I, it still has the possibility to grow uh, worldwide. Um, podcasts have been become a big thing. What's this podcast thing people are talking about here on the Make Music Income podcast, episode eighty two. Um, so, yeah, these podcasts, Spotify a few years ago said, we're going to get into podcasts. And the podcast came back uh, from the, from the not dead, but they weren't where they are now. And it's good to have a podcast right now, I can tell you, from experience. Um, so I think we're going to continue to see. I think there's going to be more players come up besides just the top three right now or top four of Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, and YouTube. I think more and more people are going to come up. And so um, while Chad says here, while the growth of streaming services may not be as explosive as in the early years, they're likely to continue expanding, especially in regions where they are still gaining traction and the ability to adapt to changing consumer preferences, invest in content and technology and explore them. It's going to keep growing, folks, is basically what Chad is trying to tell us here. And then uh, one of my last questions to Chad here was, uh, what about music publishing? Uh, we talked about BMI earlier in the news and how possibly getting sold and becoming a, a for-profit company is going to change. I haven't seen any change uh, over BMI, and I think they became for-profit last year. And I haven't seen any change necessarily in my sales. They go up and down. But um, I asked him if if music publishing... How has music publishing changed in the last ten years, and will it change in the next ten? And Chad, Mr. Chad Jippett, who is joining us today, said music publishing has undergone significant changes over the last decade, driven by shifts in technology, distribution models. Can't predict with certainty. I can provide insights, and here are some of those insights: Digital distribution, the rise of digital music platforms and streaming services, has transformed music consumption, and music publishers have had to adapt to new revenue models. Even over the past few years, we've had the MLC come into the picture to start collecting mechanical licensing royalties, at least here in the states. Other countries have CMOs that collect that performance royalties. In states, it's called the MLC, and they collect um, the pieces of pennies from mechanical royalties from what you are streaming on these platforms. Um, Global expansion, again, music publishing has become more global. I've done a video recently on neighboring rights, which is what is paid for rights holders and people who are involved in recordings um, in other countries. We don't get paid them here, but Germany, um, Italy, Spain, the Czech Republic, Brazil, they all pay royalties that you're not getting called neighboring rights to the people who are involved in the recording of the songs that are on the radio and songs that are on TV doesn't really cover Netflix and stuff like that in those countries, but it covers their their network TV, their their radio. And there is money waiting for you in neighboring rights. And I have found even more places that collect these. And some of them are places like a BMI in Germany called GVL. But uh, Germany actually has two companies, one called GEMA and one called GVL. But GVL is a, what's called a CMO. They collect the neighboring rights and, and performance royalties and stuff. So some countries they have have these that collect these neighboring rights for everybody. So this is music publishing that can be collected around the globe that we're not collecting. Sync licensing. Um, I was talking a minute ago about the percentage of streaming and how it's growing and sync licensing is hanging in there. It's only at 2% but sync licensing is a thing on the listings for music being made uh, here, at least here in America, as far as music incomes and sync licensing is royalties. And so um, all of these things, direct licensing, some artists and songwriters have chosen to bypass traditional publishing deals and license their music directly to platforms and advertisers and music supervisors. And so we're going to be talking to someone in a few weeks who is focused directly on getting her music directly licensed. No libraries. She's going to Talk, say not nice things about music libraries, and so we're going to have that conversation. It's going to be a, it's going to be a, a three ring, uh, a, a, a four round, five round uh, little fight there. So um, royalties still have things that might happen in the next two years: streaming growth, merging markets, um, copyright legislation, where things change. Listen, there are there are suits and and uh, legal battles going on. We talked about it in the news last week about that uh, AI, don't tell Chad, but AI it, uh, cannot be copyrighted. Something completely created by a machine cannot be copyrighted. And so we're gonna have more legislation on what happens if you train off my song? Do I get money from that? And how do I get money from that? So. I think copyright legislation is going to be that Uh, licensing opportunities for sure. User generated content is a big part of where our music is getting used in microsync. So all of this stuff is, I think is a big deal and all of these things are really affecting the future of music income. And just to wrap it up, you've seen a lot, you've heard a lot here. If you're listening to the podcast, um, you've, I will have edited this up a little bit for you, but we have seen a lot and we have heard a lot of information today about the future of music income. And um, let's see if I've got any questions here. We're going to head towards Q&A. So if you've got questions, it is time to ask them. Uh, Going back to uh, Shane had a, um, going back to being a professor and an adjunct, most college teachers are adjunct, which means they work as needed or per class. Um, And so this is way less money. As a matter of fact, I had lunch yesterday with a fellow uh, musician, friend of mine, and also a teacher here in town. And he mostly does adjunct teaching. I am not doing adjunct teaching. I have a full-time teaching position, uh, as does Dave. But um, if you are teaching adjunct or part-time or temporary, um, I I see these. These pay a little bit more but they're less certain, they're they're less hours, and so uh, there is less pay. So that is what's going on with that. Um, Don't go anywhere yet, folks, because I do have a few more things I wanna talk about here, and uh, Shane also mentions about Spotify. I try to increase my stream counts by listening to my music daily on Spotify. I hope by 2030 I'll be in the top 30 million streams. Uh, Good luck with that, (laughs) Shane, Shane. Come on, Jane. All right, so um, I do have one piece of viewer mail here, and I want to get to that. That was uh, a comment I got on my YouTube channel. Let me share that here with you. If we look here, uh, let me drag me way over here. And basically, Rose World said, or Rosie World said, hello, I just got my music accepted by Pond5, but as I'm new to this world of stock libraries, Microsync is what we will now call that, I have some doubts. I was told to get an ISRC code for my music before uploading it on libraries. And to do that, I had to choose a title for the song and composer artist name. When I upload to the library, I have to use the same, do I have to use the same title and composer name? And then uh, they ask a question also about content ID, I think, and so this is just something I want to talk about real quickly about ISRC codes as we end this episode. ISRC codes were created to... Um, to and, and let's just look at this. I'm going to just go to ISRC code. Because ISRC codes were created originally, as far as I remember, for... Um, the ISRC is a recording... Um, the ISRC... Sorry, let me restart that. Again, the International Standard Recording Code is what this stands for. And it stands for uh, the ISRC for a recording remains a fixed point of reference when the recording is used across different services, across borders, or under different licensing deals. ISRC identifies sound recordings and music videos. So it's not bad to have this for your songs. But uh, from my understanding, the whole point of it was to put this and digitally encode this into CDs back in the day. This is what I was told by my mastering engineer. So that if songs were played on the radio, there would be a magical mystery digital service that would that, uh, take that code and transmit it digitally to BMI and I would be paid for the play. Um, I'm not sure this happened the way they thought it was going to happen. And of course, CDs now are no longer the thing that we use all the time. But I and I am not discounting at all the uh, the value of ISRC codes. But what I'm saying is that I wouldn't freak out about it. I wouldn't worry that if you don't have an ISRC code on a piece of music, especially at a place like Content ID, where your music is being listened to, not identified by a code. It's being identified by the sound of it. Uh, same with TuneSat. Um, I don't even think they ask for an ISRC code on TuneSat. Content ID identified does ask me for a ISRC code, but still, that's a re- that's a code for the recording, and um, I-, I just don't think it's it's something that's going to be tracked. I, I don't think it's a bad thing to have on there. It's a, there's also another code that has a W in it, and I don't I'm not really up on that code, but. All these codes are helpful if, uh, let's say, you send a song to a uh, a music supervisor or a publisher and they are trying to track down who to pay for a song that they know the name and the, and the artist name, but they don't have any contact information. If they have the ISRC code, they might be able to track it down a little bit better, but maybe not, maybe they still need more um, metadata. So the ISRC code is something that you should You should. I keep all mine in a spreadsheet. You get an ISRC code automatically from anybody you send uh, when you put music up to Spotify through Distrokid or CD Baby. They all offer, I think, pretty much offer free ISRC codes. You just have to pay for it. But now I think it's 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 just it's automatically generated when you when you put something up there. But you can also get your own ISRC code. You get a prefix. And, it, and a number—it's all yours—and then you can just make your own ISRC codes. That's what I do. So I just keep them in a in a spreadsheet, and every time I make a new song, I just assign the next logical, the next number of ISRC code. I'll will sometime do a uh, uh, I'll sometime do a a, a little a video about ISRC codes because that, that's probably something that needs to be explored. But thank you for that viewer mail. I appreciate it. If there are any other questions, we are finally about done here with this long stream. And uh, uh, Matias says, I was a little late in here today. Don't know if you already talked about how was August going for you in terms of earnings. Um, I think August was fine. You know, it's, it's probably in the um, couple of hundreds. As far as Motion Array, I'll probably make about the same hundred or so I make every month. Uh, that's been about my average of good of, of, of the good months. Um, but, uh, nothing too earth shattering. I did just have four new songs get up right at the first of the month. So I'm hoping that maybe one, and they were classical. So maybe one of those classical tunes, one, I know for sure, no one else has up in motion array. And, uh, maybe one of those might get, uh, A staff pick, or so. I think I'm number three in the staff picks of classical right now. So maybe that is helping, and or will help in September. But uh, overall, it's been a pretty good, a pretty good month, uh, a a fine month, Uh, not not spectacular. And I really never know how good my month's going to be until I get my content ID income uh, list because that can take a, a bad month to a really good month. So on a few months this year, I've had a month that, for instance, let's see if I just um, look at this real quick. Uh, if I have a month that, like in May, I was having a month where I made um, $379 from all of my microsync type income, or non-exclusive income, I now call it. And if I... Add in Content ID, it's it's over five hundred dollar month, and so Content ID can make those two months. One was eighty. One turned a really kind of stinky two hundred dollar month into a almost four hundred dollar month. So uh, Content ID, I don't you don't get that right away. It's 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 uh, usually three months or four months behind as far as when you get it, and so I think. That I'll I won't know if August was a good month until I see my content ID sales and income there. Um, Bradford, greetings. Uh, yeah, that Chad guy. Uh, I if you're just tuning in, I've I've been talking today with Chad uh, Jippet. I, I'm still not sure that's how you say his name. It's it's the way I read it. But um, he's been helpful in his information today. And so, uh, yeah, I'm not sure he'll be a co-host again. But uh, at least we've got to experiment and meet someone new. So, well, folks, that is probably about it for me today. I think that's quite enough, if you ask me. And uh, I'm so glad for everyone who has joined me here in the stream. Uh, if you have any questions and after we end this stream, just make sure you put it in the comments below here on YouTube. If you are listening on the podcast, thank you so much for listening to this long podcast. I hope it helped you pass an hour and 40 minutes as you're driving somewhere or maybe two trips. That would be two trips for me to work. So hopefully this has been helpful to you and, uh, I appreciate you listening as always. Everybody, have a great weekend. Have a great day, depending on what day you're listening to this in. And we will talk to you next time here on the Make Music Income podcast. And I just want to wish you good luck in the future of your music. We'll see you next time.